Rising. We have a stunning show for you all this Thursday, but before we get to that, we want to mention that we are actually expanding the ways that you can watch the show. That's right, Robbie. We are now available on demand. Currently, we are on the Plex TV app and will be expanding to more such as Roku and Apple TV in the fall. Yay us. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it makes it feel, you know, real for your aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it might not be quite so Like, online. what is the YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> right, and I, I, I just bought my first real grown-up TV in my life. I am one of those millennials who watches everything on their oh, laptop. I have two TVs in my home, and I still have cable, no, like an old person. You're really ahead yeah. of the ball. You're a mature But now, no, now I'm cutting cable for sure because <laughs> our show is available. Yeah, also. yeah. I was going to say, I finally have like that interface, that modern TV interface mm -hmm. with the remote control and where you can toggle between these kind of online stations and your streaming stations and cable. And I'm really looking forward to being able to tell people who have this now how to access this program. I think that I think they'll enjoy it. It's very exciting. All right, well, let's get into the news of the day. What do we have, Brianna? Well, Aaron Mate joins us to discuss John Bolton's latest gaffe in Biden's trip to Israel. Plus, Emily Jashinsky is back to discuss the 10-year-old that was allegedly raped and the man in custody accused of impregnating the girl. Hmm. But first, yesterday, inflation hit 9.1% in June. That's according to the Consumer Price Index, which is a broad measure of everyday goods and services related to the cost of living. However, the calculations excluded food and energy prices, which has seen even steeper increases in some cases. Now, according to new Pew Research polls, 56% of Americans blame Biden's policies for the economy. 27% of Democrats agreed Biden's policies made the economic matters worse, while 20% said that they had made them better. In an attempt to reassure Americans, the president called June's inflation report out of date and said U.S. inflation is the lowest of almost every major nation. He also tweeted that the report does not reflect the 40-cent relief at the pump. That's dipped modestly since mid-June. But some Dems, including Tammy Baldwin, are saying that the dip in gas prices isn't enough. Now, the claim that inflation is lower here than every other major nation is just not true, um, right? I, I see Newsweek rated it mostly false. Like, it is true we're doing better than, you know, your, your frequent inflation high countries. Um, I think, what, Greece, uh, Venezuela, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, maybe I'm maligning Greece. I think I saw them on the, but, uh, so our, our rate was, is higher than the Eurozone average of 8.1%, South Korea. That was last month, uh, Canada. So it's not, you know, it's not, but it, it's, we're, we're not, we're not doing like absolutely better than a lot of our peer nations. Yeah, we're doing right. about the same or maybe a little worse in some cases. Yeah, I saw a tweet yesterday. I was struggling to find it because Twitter was down this morning, which threw my whole life. For a whole week. hour. <laughs> She just, Brianna just cried in this chair for over an hour straight. Rocked was, myself uh, slowly. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I did see a tweet that had a list of major countries and what their inflation rates were. And we weren't doing better than others. I know, I remember think, seeing that Canada was doing a little better than us. I think they were in the high sevens. But it was... It is also true that across the board, there are global inflation issues. Yep. So I think, it, you know, it is true to say you can't lay it fully at the feet of Joe Biden. No, This is largely a supply not. chain crisis, all these other kinds of things. But the question is, you know, is the captain of the ship going to take responsibility for what he can do in his power to help make it feel 
less horrible for people in the United States of America. And what some commentators have pointed out is that even though folks in other countries might say have high inflation rates, be experiencing higher costs in stores and stuff, they have countries with better infrastructure. They have countries where they've said you can take public transportation for free. They have countries where you don't have to worry about the cost of education because they have free education, including higher education. They have free health care. And so they are not we have feeling free education, it. not free higher education. Right. Well, they have free higher education. And so they're not feeling it in those ways. And so perhaps that affects how people are feeling it in a way that, you know, Joe Biden could take some responsibility for it. But I, I hear also that we have a clip of what Tammy Baldwin uh, said earlier. Let's take a listen. When people come up to you in Wisconsin in the grocery store or at the gas station and ask you about how high prices, is that what you would tell them, that the data is out of date? Certainly not. I know that people are really suffering with the inflation. And uh, while it is great news that uh, in the last month, uh, gas prices have gone down by about 40 uh, cents per, do uh, per gallon, um, that's really not the, the break people are looking for. Mm. Well, yeah. it seems like she understands on some level how craven it is to kind of respond to public frustrations with we're doing incrementally better. It's not clear, however, what the next steps are going to be. Yeah, and gas prices are, are in fact going down. I hope they continue to go down. But the, that is a volatile market. We have no real idea. It is very affected by what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. Again, that being a policy choice, I think I say this every day, but yeah. like that is not just an unchosen, whoops, I'm Joe Biden, I can't do anything about yeah. this, which sure, fine. Joe Biden didn't cause the pandemic, the supply chain disruptions, fine. I am not pinning it all on him. I think that's unfair, but we are making policy choices that are contributing, and again, he and also he didn't cause Russia to invade Ukraine, sure. but we are continuing to fund the Ukrainian opposition mm -hmm. and, uh, Whatever it takes is the is the official line, despite no public appetite for that, and it, it's continuing to cause harm here. So that like that is a policy choice, and, and that's a Joe Biden policy choice. I don't know if there was a Republican in charge if they would do that. Maybe even a different Democrat. I mean, all the Democrats seem very yeah. committed, seem more committed to Ukraine sovereignty than taking care of Americans in yeah, some I mean, way. Yeah, I mean, there was but, a conversation about the U.S. getting involved in 2014 around the Maidan coup, and Barack Obama made a different choice. And yeah. Joe was there as his VP and uh, is apparently feeling very differently than he did back in the day. Well, Jake Tapper also pressed Biden's economic counsel on the high cost of goods aside from gas. Let's watch that. That does not address the fact that groceries and rent are skyrocketing. Absolutely. You know, the, let's, let's talk about rent, which was definitely reflected in today's CPI number. Uh, in, in, the, in the short term, you know, the president is giving the Federal Reserve the space it needs to do what it needs to do to control inflation. The Federal Reserve has the dual mandate of controlling prices while maintaining maximum employment. It is doing what it needs to do. Other presidents have tried to uh, intervene in the Fed's uh, actions. This president has said they're independent. He respects what they need to do. Um, and part of what the Federal Reserve's actions will do, and we're already seeing it, is to, to cool off the housing market, which will find its way into helping with rent. But let's face it, we have a housing shortage in this country. It goes back uh, a decade, and that's why over the medium term and longer term, this president has a plan to increase housing uh, supply in this country because we know how very important it is uh, to ensure that everybody has a, a place to live. 
Wall Street is expecting the Fed to act and increase interest rate hikes another 1% by the end of this month to combat inflation, according to CNBC. This comes as Dems are urging Biden to support a new injection of resources for countries at the International Monetary Fund, which would issue at least $650 billion in aid for Ukraine. So I was reading more about this story in anticipation of us talking about this today, and it is a, it's more, it's complicated and sort of outside my expertise maybe mm-hmm. you know more about it as far as i get it's it, it, this this is a pile of money that is almost it's not like an additional aid package that we're writing a check for mm-hmm. but is part of these funds that the imf already has are part of the u.s allocation now we i think we've already put this money into it mm-hmm. and then it gets allocated for different things so it's a little bit more complicated than just like oh we're writing another check for ukraine a little bit i think at the end of the day that is still bottom line what it is um and he has to contend with the optics battle it, it, that this it's presents. not a good optics battle. You, you know. know, and again, it, it, it feels a little bit gross to constantly be comparing, you know, money given here versus money that's spent at home. You know, I have said many times that I feel like there has not been a, a solid articulation of the litmus test for U.S. involvement and that there's an open uh, paycheck to write uh, off the cost of imperialism, and that's a, a concern. But generally speaking, I think there are humanitarian endeavors that are worth spin- spending on, and it can't always be... You know, we never help anyone as long as anybody's helping at home. But you have to have a justification for it. And I'm sorry, a year after we had all of this hullabaloo over Build Back Better and how we were going to have all this spending for the American people and to have Biden's entire agenda derailed, in large part because we had these corporate Dems in Mansion and Cinema saying that they weren't willing to spend. It was too much spending. And then to turn around and so easily be able to open the pocketbook for these other mm-hmm. kinds of endeavors overseas, you have to square that. You, you have to figure out how to square that to the Especially American Especially if you people. think there should be, and I think most people do think, there should be some democratic accountability. I guess maybe it's different if there's massive public will to spend American money on humanitarian causes in Ukraine, the Middle East, Africa, wherever else. But there clearly isn't. There absolutely is not. Yeah, not they want that moment. money spent not at all or spent here. Yeah. So, uh, but it does. it's not put to the American people's approval. It's just done by politicians of a in both parties who are of a more nation-building approach. Sometimes they're laundering their nation-building under the guise of humanitarian efforts. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're doing. And it's clearly not what the people want. The people send a message every presidential election that they want to break with that. They almost never get it with the you know minor, uh, not minor, major uh, Afghanistan aside, finally. Yeah. But then <laughs> Biden went right back in for, uh, for the exact kind of foreign policy that the American people have rejected over and over again. American people in both political parties. Yeah, I agree. You know, you raised an interesting question earlier. What would have happened if, you know, Putin had invaded Ukraine under a Republican president? I don't know. There is a way that historically conservatives have tended to, you know, be the leaders of this kind of, um, you know, these kind of military interventions. No, but historically, certainly in the, in the late 90s to... Trump. Yeah, yes. and yes. I don't know what would have happened now that we're, if it had happened in the context of this interesting realignment where Re- Donald Trump really went against the Republican Party at the time in 2016 and was making this clarion call against interventionism um, that at the time, a lot of the rest of the conservative pack, you know, the 17, 16 other people he was running against were not aligned with. But he change the identity of the Republican Party in these important ways. And it's not clear to me if it weren't Trump, but it were another Republican in Congress, what would have happened, in the White House, rather, mm-hmm. what would have happened? Yeah, it's, uh, 
Interesting to speculate about. <laughs> but it's Trump, so it also it could have been, uh, if, if this had happened under Trump, it also could have gone the other way just because Trump's kind of random. And who knows? <laughs> I'm not sure how he would have responded. It's hard to predict exactly. It's true. Uh, he had impulses on foreign policy yeah. that were an improvement, I think. But they really were just impulses. He had a lot it's of impulses. True. It's but, true. He, he didn't withdraw from Afghanistan. Right. But the, the more interesting implication is that he has, however, set the stage and I think finally shown other Republicans that what the appetite for is a more restrained foreign policy. So I could see... If, if, it's, if it's not Trump, you could see someone, theoretically, who, who is more savvy about what the base wants consistently on this front. Or you could just see a, a broad return to form. Yeah, it could be just a rebrand. Because right. they're very committed. Yeah. So yeah. we'll have to see. Uh, but we'll tell you what's on Brianna's radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, in recent radars, I've discussed the corporate conservatives' war on speech, their disregard for Fourth Amendment rights, and their hypocrisy when it comes to unenumerated rights. According to elite conservatives, you have free speech unless it prevents a Supreme Court justice from having dessert. Your home is your castle unless the men climbing the ramparts are border control agents. And unenumerated rights don't exist if we're talking basic privacy rights, like the right to marry who you want or make personal decisions with your doctor. They only exist if we're massively expanding the meaning of, say, the Second Amendment to include weaponry the founders contemplated about as much as they ever contemplated gay marriage. Now, it seems some elected conservatives are becoming increasingly bold in their disregard for the constitutional values they claim to hold dear. Last month, at a religious conference in Colorado, Republican Representative Lauren Boebert defended the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case overturning Roe v. Casey by proclaiming that she is, quote, tired of the separation between church and state. The church is supposed to direct the government, she said. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. She added, I'm tired of the separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. Now, of course, you're allowed to have spiritual beliefs, and those beliefs will probably inform the way you live your life and do your job, even if you're in Congress. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that church is supposed to direct the government? Well, you might be thinking, which church? Who decides? Is it my Methodist uncle, who's a pastor in Baltimore, or the female reformed Jewish rabbi who administered my friend's adult conversion, Obama's pastor, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, or Ilhan Omar's imam? Now, those of you who are watching, who are at least over the age of 10, probably understand that what Bobart is claiming is patently false. I, I can't believe I have to clarify this at all, much less to a sitting congressperson, but the very first amendment includes what's called the Establishment Clause. It prevents the establishment or elevation of one religion over any other by the state. And it guarantees your right to practice what you wish. It reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, the amendment goes on to cover the often cited free speech bits, but this first part is literally how the First Amendment to our Constitution begins. I can't be sure exactly of what Bobart meant when she said that the idea of the separation of church and state was 
junk in a letter um, and not the Constitution, but she might have been alluding to the 1802 letter Thomas Jefferson addressed to a Connecticut congregation and published in a Massachusetts newspaper in which he coined the phrase separation of church and state. He wrote, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between a man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people which declare that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So she's right. The literal words separation of church and state are not in the Constitution. But other words, meaning exactly that, are the first words in the very first amendment, and the meaning of the Founding Fathers could not be more clear. They're certainly a great deal clearer than, say, the text of the Second Amendment, which guarantees citizens the right to form a well-regulated militia and to bear arms, but says nothing that would prevent the types of regulations and limitations that are often applied to, say, the First Amendment, and which the Supreme Court regularly strikes down when applied to the Second. But this isn't about the Second Amendment. This is about the first, one I think we can all agree on, and how conservatives are increasingly open about their desire to live in a theocracy. This week, Boebert doubled down on her opposition to America's premier constitutional right. I can't do her statements justice. Take a listen for yourself. That's um, ignorantly say this is in the Constitution separation of church and state and they don't know what it means um, and they think that that means you can't talk about God. Well, if there really is this separation of church and state like they believe it means, well, then what is Ilhan doing with her with her ajivan? I mean, what? Why is she able to go in there with that? I mean, why aren't they shouting that from the rooftop separation of church and state? Can you hang on for? Well, someone certainly doesn't understand what separation between church and state means, but it's not Ilhan Omar. It used to be that conservatives bragged about America being a democracy, free from religious authoritarianism, unlike certain Muslim countries that were targeted for public ire after the 9-11 attacks and our subsequent pretextual invasion of Iraq. It used to be that uh, it was a bragging right that in America, elected officials could wear necklaces bearing a cross or a Star of David, that they could cover their hair according to religious tradition like Ilhan Omar or Rachel Freer, the first Hasidic woman elected to public office in the United States. But according to the new conservative definition, religious liberty means conforming to the spiritual proclivities of whoever happens to be in power. And right now, if you're not Catholic, watch out. According to Boebert, the 22% of Americans who are Catholic have the right to force you into pews, to give up your birth control and forsake whatever God you believe in. America was literally founded by immigrants looking to escape this type of religious persecution. Back then, they were freeing Catholic rites and rituals. It's incredible to think that the very oppressive religious orthodoxy they once fled has reemerged 200 years later, despite our founding documents being as explicit as they possibly could be about how important it is for Americans to have the freedom to worship whatever Lord they hold dear, not the church of Lauren Boebert, whatever that is. Now, you know this came up for me um, about a month ago. Here in DC, I was sitting in a park, scribbling some notes for a radar and a notebook. And an older man came up and sat next to me and struck up a conversation. 
He was friendly, he was a nice guy, but when the subject of politics came up, he told me he hated Barack Obama because he was a Muslim and we are a Christian nature, nation. Now, I had been ready to join him in some substantive criticism of Barack Obama, but obviously Barack Obama's religious beliefs were not the basis of my personal critique. For one, Obama identifies as Christian, but if he were Muslim, it would be irrelevant to me. So I took a beat to consider my approach and decided to say the following to my new acquaintance. Obama wasn't Muslim, but even if he were, the great thing about this country is that one of our most hallowed ideals is the separation between church and state. That means no matter what the spiritual beliefs of our president is, it has no bearing on the laws that are passed or what we as citizens are allowed to believe. We aren't, in fact, a Christian nation, but a secular one, entrenched by, uh, enriched rather, by the religious traditions of millions of Christians and Jews and atheists and Muslims and Buddhists and others. And isn't it a good thing that no matter which of them becomes president or enters Congress, we can all continue to live as we like? Doesn't that make you feel safer than if we were a theocracy and we did establish Christianity as our national religion? and the president, or what the Congress believed, became the law of the land? I was honestly surprised by how quickly he took to this argument. As soon as I presented the potential hypothetical that a Muslim Barack Obama might leave the country based on Islamic faith, he saw the wisdom of keeping the whole thing separate. And even though it obviously bothers me that it was his Islamophobia that led him to understand the wisdom of separating church and state, at least we got there. He understood. Now, Bobert might not be quite as sharp as this vaguely senile older man that I met in the park, but that doesn't mean Republican voters have to join her in her ignorance. But unfortunately, Republican leadership seems to be doing exactly that. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, his Civics Literacy Excellence Initiative, it requires that high school educators tell students that the nation's founders did not champion the separation of church and state, even though, as I explained earlier, they quite clearly did. At a far-right conference recently, Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate said the separation of church and state was a, quote, myth, and, quote, in November, we are going to take our state back. My God will make it so. Again, America is only 22% Catholic. It's overwhelmingly majority Christian, obviously. But the six Catholic justice, who, justices rather, who make up the conservative majority at the Supreme Court have blasted through the wall separating church and state, kind of like the Kool-Aid man. Prayer in school might be okay, seeming, if everyone can do it, regardless of religion. But what happens when some religions are seen as legit legitimate and others aren't? Some prayers are sanctioned and others aren't. Some churches get tax-exempt status and others don't because they're not seen as real churches. Who decides? And what if the government plays favorites with God and your God is the one left out? Lauren Boebert swore her oath of office on a Bible. Ilhan Omar swore hers on a Quran. Now, Theodore Roosevelt did not use a Bible or any other religious text. And Quincy Adams swore his oath on a book of law with the intention that he was swearing on the Constitution. Now, America is great precisely because people can make those kinds of individual choices. Lauren Boebert and contemporary corporate Republicans stoking the culture wars uh, over this, it's just not worth tarnishing one of the founding fathers' best and perhaps most sacred ideas. The question now is, will conservative voters stand up against it? Hmm.
Hmm. Okay, but Lauren <laughs> Boebert is not Catholic, as far as I no, can I'm tell. No, I'm not sure what her religious ideals are. So I think we're being a little, a little slippery here. Um, so? Okay, Lauren Boebert is a ridiculous person, and the things <laughs> she's saying about the separation of church and state are false. I completely agree with you. When it comes to the Supreme Court, I mean, these are harder to adjudicate issues. They're, in my view and in the court's view, they're not imposing Catholic doctrine on the country, but rather allowing for the exercise of Catholic or other religious practices in some ways that confusingly interact with the state functions. I mean, the state, the government does far more than it did when the founders designed our system, right? So there are there are edge cases that would not have necessarily occurred to them. Well, what what are the schools going to teach? Well, there weren't there were there weren't you know federally funded and mandated schools for everyone at the time they conceived of our government. So now we're trying the age, the number of agencies there are. Well, what 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 First Amendment and religious rights do public employees have versus does it matter if they're in a teaching role? Does it matter what stage or what level of child they're interacting with or you know what their public facing role? Is? There are all these kinds of well, how do we square this? desire to let people practice whatever religion they want without establishing any religion on the state side, it's a, it's, there are harder cases to adjudicate now that the government does vastly more than the founders envisioned it doing. But I, I don't disagree with you that we should not establish any religion, obviously, formally, but I don't, I, I don't think our Supreme Court is in danger of imposing Catholic Sharia law. <laughs> Just a pretty, I, and I say that as a as someone who is raised Catholic, who is mm-hmm. not particularly faithful or religious uh, now in his life, but has some affection for his Catholic upbringing. I do disagree with what you said, though. About I'll probably make some of the viewers who are usually supportive of me mad. The the Puritans did not come to this country seeking religious tolerance. There was too much re- religious tolerance for their liking in England, and they left it in order to establish a society where they could be less religiously tolerant. Well, there was too much Catholicism. Well, yeah, per, uh, there was, being it, tol- Yeah, they were. They wanted to escape Catholic rites and rituals that they felt like they didn't have the freedom to. Right. No, they were annoyed to, to, with anybody practicing Catholicism. It's it anti- right. anti-Catholic discrimination, I, not, to, not to pull a no, but that's, Sopranos that's, over that's here. That's part of what the irony is about the situation. I mean, there was a, like a, a viral, a viral tweet years. after the, the Dobbs decision where somebody said, what would the founding fathers say if they found out that you know uh, six Catholics on the Supreme Court had just overturned Right. Uh, row and the, they would say like, the dream of Massachusetts no. Bay Colony is, is over. <laughs> no, they would say six Catholics yeah. in the Supreme Court. Like, how yeah. do we let that happen? So, yeah. like, you're right. There has been a lot of anti-Catholic discrimination, and that's you know, obviously, the goal here isn't to pile on to Catholics. The reason I point out the fact that the six conservatives in the Supreme Court are Catholic is this: when you read the Dobbs decision, the core finding that you are looking for as someone who is not. Uh, does not believe that life begins at conception is an argument that is not religious as right. to why the state has an interest in allowing pe- people to uh, states to prohibit the individual decisions between a doctor and her uh, a woman and her doctor right. before the point of viability. Right. This is what it's about because already there were you had the freedom states had the freedom to regulate abortion after the point of viability under Roe and Casey. That was already the law. So the question on Dobbs is. Should the, the, the federal government protect the right that women have to make these kind of medical decisions before the point of viability? And unfortunately, when you read 
when you read the opinion, there is no articulation of that argument. It, there is an assumption that there is a life that begins at conception, that there is something that the state interest has in protecting. And my frustration is that the clearly religious motives that are driving that kind of an outcome are being obscured by this like pretend textual analysis that's not there. And so if people were able to articulate a rationale that was explicitly non-religious, I would be less skeptical that it is in fact religion that is driving these motivations. And again, but it's that can easily be done, and lots of people are doing that. But they specifically aren't. with abortion. But they aren't. No, people, absolutely, people have they the are. Complete and total They're saying freedom. they have the view that it's that it, it is, is you are harming life. It's it, it right, overlaps Robbie, with religious view, but you can be totally non-religious and Robbie, think that if I menstruate, I'm harming life. If I slough some skin cells off my arm, I'm ha harming life. There are a million and one ways that you can do things to yourself that affect life. The, 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 the definition... Okay, I don't, I don't think a, a dog has a soul. I support but, animal cruelty but the, but laws the because it's wrong to... It, it seems wrong to... The, the definition of, li of life is at, in it of itself in contention and is very religiously motivated. There are people who are advocating bans on birth control and uh, abortificants that... It, 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 it attach before there's even imp uh, implantation of the egg and the, and, and the sperm and before it, it even if that ha implantation that has happened before implantation in the wall of the uterus there are so many things here that are completely outside of science or our understanding I don't of know that they're outside even, of science banning things as abortificants that are birth control that affect a separate sperm and an egg before they have even joined is the most ridiculous definition of what life could possibly be. There's I'm no saying these kinds there's of no moral, human potentiality these science at judgments all. and moral judgments right. overlap in all sorts of policy questions. And I don't think this one is right. more but moral, but moral religious than anything else. Moral judgments and religious judgments are different. And many, many religions, including Judaism, protect the right to have an abortion throughout your pregnancy and sure. pr privilege the right. So what we're seeing is we're not saying all religions are weighing in here. We're saying, seeing one religion and one sect of one religion in particular, because many people who are not Catholics have a many, much more liberal attitude toward abortion. So we're seeing a very specific and frankly unique and niche religious opinion, one might say agenda, being promulgated over all of these other ways of seeing in the world. I don't think and the opinion people, that ab abortion should not is immoral, not permissible, or is harming a life after, say, the first trimester or so many weeks is a is a niche opinion. Well, it's actually no, a, it, no, it is. It is in fact an overwhelming majority of America Americans believe that a woman should have a right to choose in the first trimester. That is not yeah, a but no right. I said in the later trimester. Right, but that yes. was not that point in Dobbs. You already had states have the right to regulate abortion after the first trimester. That was already the case in America. That's what Roe and Casey established. So I can sit here, Robbie, and say I think burgundy ties are immoral. I can say that's my conviction. I can even say it's not a, a religious conviction. It's just my moral conviction. But I would argue but it doesn't I, make it. So. I would argue against you banning, wanting to ban burgundy colored ties on it's, it's not a religious I would just say well the government shouldn't do that that's your opinion but the government doesn't have the legitimacy to prescribe what people right, wear and but then if you said but, but you know can you kill people and say well no the government does have the authority to prevent right. you from killing someone well, like this is just yeah but it's, it's a, a debate about what the government's legitimacy it's is. not a someone according to millions and millions in the majority of Americans oh, no, that's Robbie. what we're arguing about whether it's but a no. someone
It's not as a religious a, argument. As a it's an argument about. But it's not, Robbie, because you have to be able to well, articulate a religious, ras- a non-religious rationale for why you think that life begins at conception. And as a libertarian, I think you have to be able to put forward a rationale why you think, in this instance, the state should be interfering with the private relationship between a person and their doctor. That's the be-all. Well, I didn't say I think they and should. Moreover, I just, I just, it's not strictly a religious then you have to be able to give the non-religious rationale. And these people in the Supreme Court and people like Lauren Burbert are not doing that. And in fact, Lauren Bobart is very explicitly saying that she wants the United States government, this is a sitting congresswoman who says she wants the United States government to establish one religion over the others. And the fact that there aren't the, the entire Republican con- Congress congressional slate isn't standing up to rebuke that, and that that isn't a bigger news story, and that people are deeply ashamed of the fact that someone could have such a poor reading of the Constitution and the founding. On uh, the narrow the issue first. of how utterly ridiculous Lauren Boebert is, we're in complete agreement. Right. And the question is now whether this is something that conservatives, yourself, libertarians, who should have a deeply held value in the separation of church and state, are going to say anything about it or if they're going to continue to exploit these kind of culture war issues to the polls, no matter what it does for the future of our democracy. We could go on like this for quite a while, but we've got more more show to make, so stay tuned. Journalist Aaron Mate is with us coming up. Former National Security Advisor, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. and State Department official John Bolton said the quiet part out loud during an interview with CNN's Jake Tapper on Tuesday. Let's watch. I don't know that I agree with you, to be be, uh, fair, with all due respect. uh, One doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work, and that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. Despite the backlash, Bolden doubled down on his comments yesterday, calling his detractors snowflakes. Well, I think there are a lot of snowflakes out there that don't understand what you need to do to protect the United States. Uh, I'm not going to get into specifics. I did write about Venezuela uh, in, in my memoir. Uh, And I think that any president that's not willing to do what it takes to protect the interests of the American people needs to have some uh, some counseling. Joining us now to weigh in is host of Pushback, airing on the Gray Zone, Aaron Maté. Welcome back to Rising, Aaron. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So what did you make of these comments? Uh, Maybe it feels... uh, uh, gratifying to hear Bolton just admit to something uh, he's long been accused of uh, by, uh, well, probably by all three of us for the left libertarian alliance on this issue. (laughs) Well, it's an amazing moment. And Bolton has been open in the past about his role in overthrowing foreign governments. As he said, he writes in his book about trying to stage a coup in Venezuela under Trump beginning in 2019. But here he is making it plain that this is U.S. government policy in many places, not just in Venezuela. And there's what makes it even more hilarious is that he's also dispelling another obsession of the corporate media, which is that what Trump did on January 6th was something approaching a coup. Because the reason why we're still talking about January 6th, 18 months later, even though Trump is gone and he's already been impeached for it, is because our media is addicted to Trump and needs to speak about him constantly. So here is John Bolton pointing out that actually this obsession you have on a riot was not a coup. And I know because I've done real coups. And those real coups, ironically, are coups that corporate outlets like CNN and Jake Tapper support and whitewash. So 
when Trump tried to overthrow the government of Venezuela by imposing a blockade, by organizing uh, a coup plot, trying to install this puppet Juan Guaido, people like Jake Tapper didn't care because that is considered normal in U.S. foreign policy. They want to make the issue about a riot at home while supporting coups abroad. And so in one comment, John Bolton blew all that up. Yeah, it's interesting, frankly, that it has gotten this much traction, given that it seems like an, an open secret in some ways. You know, I do remember a fairly recent Jin Psaki press conference where she said very blithely, you know, we don't do coups. America doesn't overthrow governments. And it, and it elicited a similar kind of reaction of skepticism from the left. But this seems to be a mainstream pushback against the idea that he would kind of openly say, of course, we do coups. And, and we shouldn't miss that. He was provoked to say this because he somehow felt insulted at the idea that only morons can do right, coups. Right, sloppy work. <laughs> right. He didn't want to, he, his craft was being impugned, right. really, is what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really ridiculous, but I don't know, what do you make of the, the reaction in this moment? Are you surprised that so many you know, mainstream figures seem to have take issue with this? Well, Jake Tapper's response to Bolton, I think, perfectly encapsulates our media's approach to all this. Because first of all, if our media did its job, then John Bolton, every time he'd be interviewed, he'd be asked about his actual record. His record, not just in Venezuela, but also in Haiti in 2004, when a US-backed coup overthrew, for the second time, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a priest who was elected overwhelmingly by Haiti's poor majority. So because of that, he was overthrown twice by the US. And John Bolton, I think, played a key role in the most recent one, 2004. So if we had an honest media, John Bolton would be asked about this constantly, but he's not. He's instead treated as some sort of serious figure that we should turn to to weigh in on matters such as democracy and protecting the U.S. When John Bolton's main job throughout his professional life has been to destroy countries abroad that stand in the way of U.S. hegemony. So when John Bolton makes his admission to Jake Tapper, what does Jake do? He kind of jokes around with him and says, oh, I feel there's something you're not telling me. Ha ha ha. He doesn't press him. You know, he, pre he, he doesn't say, okay, well, where else have you tried to overthrow governments and what did you do? It was a very sort of jovial exchange because that right there is the role of the U.S. media to treat John Bolton as if they're serious diplomats and not professional sadists who mm. design policies that destroy other countries that stand in the way of U.S. global dominance. John Bolton was, I think, a reviled figure in the mainstream media for a long while. And then he he got the life hack, the upgrade. He turned on Trump, um, maybe, maybe for, you know, for legitimate reasons. Trump is something of a buffoon and then became a celebrity, uh, a celebrated media celebrity as this, you know, former Trump person who turns on Trump and now is, you know, welcome in mainstream circles and faces very little pushback for the policies he supported because he's willing to attack Trump. And that's all they want to hear. We're talking about one of the most dangerous characters, I think, in modern U.S. political history. When he was Call working under George, North Korea. <laughs> yes. And when he was working under George W. Bush, he oversaw the dismantling of a really important arms control treaty called the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Uh, that allowed the U.S. to start building up these missile sites in Europe that they claim would protect Europe from Iranian missiles, which was a complete scam. The real aim was to put the U.S. in a better position to threaten Russia. And decisions like that helped lead us onto the Cold War path that have led us to the war in Ukraine today. So John Bolton did that, and he comes back under Bush. He picks up where he left off. He dismantles another critical Cold War arms control treaty, the INF Treaty. And that treaty had eliminated an entire class of 
of heavy offensive weapons and nuclear weapons. That allows both the U.S. and Russia to resume building those, and the U.S. even tests them. John Bolton oversees coups in Venezuela and Haiti. He got, in 2002, he forced the ouster of the head of the OPCW, Jose Bustani, because Jose Bustani at the time was standing in the way of the Bush administration's drive to invade Iraq. Bustani wanted to bring Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention, and what that would have done is subject Iraq to regular inspections, which could have seriously impeded the Bush administration's drive to war because those inspections would have showed that the Bush administration's claims about Iraq having WMDs and chemical weapons were false. So John Bolton goes to the OPCW, tells the Bustani, you have to resign and we know where your kids live. Bustani's mm -hmm. spoken about this before publicly, including uh, with me in an interview. And uh, John Bolton succeeded. Bustani was ousted. He successfully intimidated the OPCW into ousting Bustani. That's his actual record. But as you say, because under Trump, when he came back, at the end, he was fired by Trump because they didn't get along, and he turned on Trump in the end. And when Democrats' first impeachment wasn't going so well over the, over the Ukraine situation, John Bolton broke out that he had some book coming out that would maybe confirm everything Democrats were saying because they had no direct evidence for their claims that Trump was trying to bully Ukraine into investigating Joe Biden and leveraging weapons sales uh, for that. And so he was a media darling. And then, of course, his book came out later on and it didn't confirm anything of the sort. But the fact that he was willing to go against Trump on these narrow grounds made him a media hero. And that's why he's being charted back out now and being treated as a serious person and given this light pushback from people like Chick Tepper. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your journalism and your uh, persistence in holding these figures' feet to the fire. And thank you for joining us today, Aaron. Thanks, Bree. Thank you. Team Rising joins us next. President Biden welcomed Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador at the White House on Tuesday. One of the main topics on the negotiating table was securing the U.S.-Mexico border. In fact, the Mexican government agreed to fund $1.5 billion in new construction projects at the border to help improve screening and processing migrants. The deal comes as the U.S. saw a record number of illegal border crossings in May. According to the Customs and Border Protection, there were over 239,000 encounters. Here to discuss Biden's and AMLO's meetings are Jen Perlman, co-host of Generational Change, and Malik Abdul, a Republican strategist. Welcome to you both. Thanks Thank for you for having me. Malik, do you think that, you know, this is an issue, obviously, that has animated the Republican base for a very long time, and Donald Trump was one of the first um, candidates to really pay attention to it and channel that frustration over border crossings and the lack of a wall, et cetera. Um, do you think, you know, this is going to continue to be an issue that, um, that Republicans talk about, given that actually my understanding is not a lot got done on that front while Trump was president and th that, of course, Republicans want to turn around and go after Biden for it. But, uh, you know, they were in charge and I don't think very much border wall got built. Uh, what do you say? And so I think it's probably really important to understand that when it comes to immigration, our border, um, border, this is something that Republicans have actually focused on for a while, even during the George Bush administration. The irony about this entire discussion, even the Republican versus Democrat um, divide, even during the Barack Obama years, I think the Barack Obama, and Barack Obama and Joe Biden, that administration, they built over, I think, 100 miles of border wall. So this was for part of funding that was initially um, 
it, it was initially started under the Bush administration, the Barack Obama administration actually continued it. So for a while, the Democratic Party were actually in support of border wall construction because we have the numbers to bear that out. It became a political issue once Donald Trump started running for president. And then um, Democrats thought that border walls were then racist things, even though, again, it's something that the party had supported for a while. I don't think that the Republican Party, the, the Republican Party will see this effort as um, probably many of the things that Donald Trump did himself. I push back a bit. It's not that um, Donald Trump didn't get anything done on the border. Things that were around um, certain security requirements, you know, enhancing security, everything from drones, which included also border wall construction. I think when people have the discussion of the border, um, we only talk about the border wall as if there aren't other mechanisms that the federal government takes to enhance security at the border. So we're not talking about border wall construction anymore because it's become a political issue, but this is something that Democrats themselves have supported, even Barack Obama and the current president, Joe Biden. Yeah, Malik, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Hillary Clinton was running on a border fence. Uh, but, but Jim, let me ask you this. A lot of the scuttlebutt about the this fence meeting... fence is not a wall. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently that's a distinction with a difference. Don't send a fence to do a wall's job. <laughs> but, but Jim, uh, a lot of the scuttlebutt online about this meeting was about the fact that it seemed like uh, Elmo was lecturing, uh, lecturing Biden for about 30 minutes on a number of things. There was a little bit of a, a jab. Some people thought it was a, a little snark in there about how uh, he felt like he had to open up the border to, to poor Americans who had to come to Mexico to take advantage of their better gas prices. Um, they've been subsidizing the price of gas. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the kinds of things that were discussed in this, this meeting and why, why it set uh, Twitter ablaze? Yeah, I think that from our perspective, from this country's perspective, there's a lot of optics involved here. I think that this administration absolutely knows that it's extremely unpopular and they don't want to give us anything with regards to any sort of economic justice or real relief for people. So this is one of those things, I think, where they can come out and sort of finagle the narrative however they want and make it look like, oh, look, we're getting Mexico to do all this stuff which to me is really no different than the nonsense that Trump was spewing when he was running regarding, we're gonna get them to pay for it. And I think the fact that they're even putting out the amount that they've agreed to pay is also just for optics because we will never really know what did we offer them in return? What did Joe offer AMLO to be like, oh yeah, we're gonna do all this for you. So that's the story we're never gonna know. But as far as the border wall, this has been a bipartisan um, deportation and wall building process for, for decades. So I agree, this is not a Republican um, problem. Yeah, Malik, there's been a lot of continuation, as you both point out, in the immigration strategy. Of course, then the media comes in and, you know, attacks, uh, for instance, Republicans over, remember, the kids in cages type thing. And then you find out that some of those images predated the Trump administration, that the policy actually hasn't really been changed for, you know, for people who are, I think, understandably out outraged about it. There was like a lot of continuity um, th there. So what does that, you know, what does that say about the immigration, the border debate in this country? 
I think Bree actually focuses on this a lot, that there are not a lot of nuance to these discussions that we have. So we should be able to talk about the fact that border, the border wall, as far as a border wall, a physical border wall, barrier, fence, slats, whatever you want to call it, this is something that both sides have discussed. But unfortunately, in our media landscape, the environment in which we're in, we can't have conversations to say, well, hey, remember, Hillary Clinton really did say that. Barack Obama really did support that because we've weaponized these things and it happens on both the left and the right that when it comes to these sort of issues we weaponize them in a way that we no longer have these sort of nuanced discussions and it ultimately doesn't serve the American people very well it served the, uh, our social media likes and loves and retweets well but it doesn't serve the American people well because it misinforms them on what the steps that the federal government has been doing all along so I agree with everyone on this continuity argument this is something that has continued under every single president. But when it comes to a border wall itself, that particular thing has become weaponized, even though it's something that the American people have supported all along. Getchen, yeah, it feels like a really weird place for the Biden administration to be in. We obviously talk a lot about his low poll numbers and his kind of weakness here domestically. And it's interesting to see him in this uh, kind of foreign policy context, similarly showing some vulnerabilities here, not just the quip about the gas, but apparently uh, AMLA was frustrated by uh, the, the decision not to invite uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, those countries um, to the summit of the Americas uh, just last month. And it seems like there is a, a kind of different energy in the air with respect to pushback against the United States, which is highlighting, I think, some of the inconsistencies in its foreign policy approach, especially now as it's courting relationships with other countries that I would argue are much more problematic than the ones that were not invited to the, the Conference of the Americas because of our need to bring down oil prices and the political need to bring down oil prices. What do you make of this? Is this a kind of meaningful realignment? I don't know. Again, like I said, I find this to be very optical. To me, all of these kinds of meetings are very optical. And it's really just a matter of who is this administration trying to win over with these optics? You know, this border wall, the immigration, this is definitely much more of a appeal to the right wing kind of talking point. The Democrats always feel the need to kind of match the Republicans when it comes to we're strong on this, we're strong on that. But I think that Mexico very rightfully understands how vulnerable our country is right now. And I think that they're going to get whatever they can out of it. And I don't know that we'll ever really know what they're getting out of this. That's always my suspicion is that we don't really know. We only know what we're allowed to know from that meeting. And what we're allowed to know is gonna be a rah-rah, go USA propaganda talking point when we really don't know what we gave up in concession for this. But I just wanna say something about this whole border wall thing, that it is completely unreasonable and not based on reason. And I get that people support it and I get that all these administrations have been doing it. But we know that that is not the source of most of our illegal immigration in this country, is not from illegal border crossings. So this entire thing has been a political football that's now being used in just another direction. Hmm. Well, Malik and Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. An arrest has been made in the rape of a 10-year-old Ohio girl who was forced to cross state lines to procure an abortion. 
27-year-old Gerson Fuentes was arrested Tuesday after police say he confessed to raping the child on at least two occasions. While DNA test results are still pending, officials say the victim has identified Fuentes as her rapist. The arrest corroborates the Indy Star's initial July 1st reporting on the victim's cross-state travel for an abortion. Their viral story drew scrutiny after Washington Post fact-checkers struggled to verify key details. Emily Jashinsky joins us now with her reaction to these developments. She's culture editor at The Federalist and co-host of Rising Fridays. Welcome, Emily. Good morning, guys. So what do we do here? You know, we had high profile state individuals like Jim Jordan, representative uh, from, from the state where this happened, you know, saying that this was likely a hoax. Um, you know, many people were convinced by this fact check that at very least there was something fishy going on here. There was a, a lot of reason for some to think that Democrats had, you know, cherry picked uh, a vaguely corroborated story and that this was their comeuppance. This is something that they've done before and people felt very justified in saying that there was a high likelihood that this story wasn't false and now things have flipped rather dramatically in the last 24 hours what's to be said about this yeah and the reason we're doing this segment is because we wanted to follow up on our own coverage um you know i don't think any of us here has a problem saying if we get a story wrong i've certainly been wrong before and i promise you it will happen again uh the difference is if you're okay saying it so i I thought this story was very fishy too. I'm, I'm perfectly happy and content to admit that. And I think uh, you guys may have shared that uh, to some extent. I, I mean, just going back to the original Indie Star story, I actually think this whole confusion is why the critique stands up perfectly well of that Indie Star story. This is why, I mean, I, I teach journalism to students at the, the National Journalism Center. Part of my job is uh, as a director there, we used the story in class to show what not to do as a journalist. And I went back and I looked at it. The story had a single source um, who heard this secondhand. Every major city in Ohio told the Washington Post when Glenn Kessler went and checked that they had no record of this, even though there would be a mandatory reporting requirement. The Ohio Attorney General said he had no record of it. And the paper, the Indy Star, wouldn't tell the Washington Post. And it didn't include in its original story whether it had made an effort to contact law enforcement. And so when you have all of those things together, you have great reason to be skeptical of a story like this that is then being used for political purposes and as a political pawn by a political cause. In this case, it was the president and the Democratic Party. But one thing we were careful to do in our coverage, and I think is is very much worth reiterating now, is say there is a a, there are two sides to this. There, there are two different points of the story. The first is whether it is broadly representative of something that will happen in the post-real world. And we said yes. The second is whether it's true. And to that first point, uh, according to the Post, I think it was according to the Washington Post in 2020, there were 52 women who had abortions under the age of 15 in the state of Ohio. That is a really important tidbit of information. That's that is very real. And that is a very real part, not just of the 2020 landscape, but of the post-rail landscape as red states like Indiana, um, purple states like Ohio, debate new laws about what to do in the cases of, of rape and incest. And from the anti-abortion side of this argument, I don't think that the pro-life movement should run from that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Ahead, yeah, and I, I did agree with you when we talked about this the other day. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that, look, this story, according to the Washington Post follow-up reporting on it, 
was describing an unusual and atypical occurrence. There are not a lot of abortions performed on people that young. It doesn't happen that frequently. It was, it was a kind of extraordinary claim, but that didn't mean it didn't happen for sure, just that it, I think it was right to be a little skeptical of it, given that there wasn't a ton of corroboration initially, and it was fine to proceed from that. Now, what I think some people on the right did, and some people in, in conservative media then got over their skis and started immediately saying, hoax, didn't happen, and, and, and now look rather foolish for going that far, uh, because now we have had it really dramatically suddenly confirmed. Yeah, but it's at more than point. looking foolish, right? If you're if you're an Ohio State representative who tweets out that this story is a hoax, and to be clear, the fact check said there wasn't corroboration. That's a very different thing than saying it's patently untrue or it's a hoax. Right. A hoax suggests intentional um, misrepresentation, right? And then to just go ahead and delete that tweet without any further comment, without any apology or um, you know discussion the likes of which we're having now, you know, what people are afraid of is that this is going to be used as evidence, not just that this one event didn't happen, but that people, that stories like this don't really happen, that people who raise concerns about what these draconian abortion laws, like are the ones that are being contemplated in Ohio right now, the effects that they will have on children, like this 10-year-old who was raped likely when she was nine years old because she just recently had her 10th birthday, according to this new reporting. You know, what are the implications of that? And while I was critical of Joe Biden, you know, trying to it, it perhaps exploit a outlier example or a really extreme example for his own political gain without necessarily reaching out to the family and trying to find more and support and help. I think it's not really in question that it's much more pernicious to take a story like this, which is possible and credible and does happen all the time, and use it to justify laws that would put a, a girl like this in a situation of having to have difficult difficulty in, in uh, attaining an abortion, and also smear potential victims who are going to now have a harder time coming forward because their literal state representative is out here mm -hmm. saying that things like this couldn't happen. Yeah, no, and, and you made a really good point on the segment also, and, and you, you compared it to the story that actually did turn out to be false about CBP um, whipping migrants. And what you said was, I agree with it completely, we don't need to uh, you know, hyperbolize stories to use them as political pawns because the reality is already bad enough. And this case actually really proves that and underscores the point completely because 52 young girls under the age of 15 getting abortions in a single state in 2020 or any given year. I actually think that's a shockingly high number. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if you follow these issues, you know that this happens way more than maybe some people realize. It absolutely does happen. And that's why when I went back and looked at our coverage, um, it, the, the headline said hoax question mark. Well, Jim, to your point, outright, outright called it a lie. And then the Washington, or the, the Wall Street Journal editorial board called the story, quote, fanciful. That mm. is going over your skis. That That's yeah. not the sort of nuanced and important media critique um, because that Indie Star story never should have went to print precisely because of reasons like this, because mm. it's so doubt over an individual and, and an individual tragedy that has now become a national sort of football needlessly 
uh, because they had a story that was not well corroborated and it should have been, they should have had law enforcement on the record in the story. They should have said they reached out to law enforcement in the story. And instead that had to happen down the line. It appears that the, the person who has confessed in this case to the rape on more than one occasion twice is, um, is undocumented. That's what the, the follow-up reporting says. So it's going to continue to be a national football and a national pawn. Uh, the, the tragedy will, um, but calling it fanciful, I think is a good example of exactly what not to do because this is the reality. This does yeah. happen. And it, it's, you need it's to a, it's it. a mistake. I, I occasionally, or maybe more than occasionally see, uh, people in right-wing media make when they, you know, or they have all these legitimate criticisms of the mainstream media, criticisms I share because the mainstream media does get things wrong, do, does have reporting that is wrong or biased, uh, but but not all of it is wrong and biased, right? And then, when, you know, when you're condemning the entire institution of the media, then you mi miss that alternative media also gets things wrong. We get things wrong sometimes. Like, it's not, it's not just the mainstream media, but then the mainstream media thinks that all alternative independent media is everything they say is lies it's not it's it's all we are all fallible we're all capable of error and the best thing you can do is just is just uh admit when you when you got it wrong so we're glad this story uh I, well glad is the wrong word i wish this story had never obviously happened it's absolutely horrible but uh we will continue to discuss it thank you so much emily for joining us thank you guys and we'll have more rising after this President Biden continued his busy week in the Middle East, where he is spending time in Israel. In an interview with Israeli News Channel 12, he defended the country as a democratic state and ally, as well as dismissing concerns from some progressive democratic lawmakers about Israel's conflict with Palestine. Let's listen. Israel is a democracy. Israel is our ally. Israel is a friend. And uh, I think that I make no apologies. We've, we've provided for my administration, $4 billion plus another billion for Iron Dome. And we're working on a laser project to be able to replace Iron Dome. Mm -hmm. uh, it's overwhelming our interest that, that uh, Israel be stable. Israel Defense Forces welcomed Biden, saying, quote, together we strengthen our, the ties between our nations and allies in the region. Here to discuss Biden's visit to Israel is Aaron Mate, reporter and host of The Pushback, airing on the Gray Zone. Welcome, Aaron. Good to be here. Aaron, is there anything surprising about the tone that Biden struck in those remarks and during this visit? No. Uh, recall that Joe Biden was supposed to be this massive sea change from Donald Trump. But when it comes to the Middle East, I can't see one tangible difference. It's the exact same policy. The only potential difference was back on the campaign trail when Biden promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Well, what's happening now on this trip after Israel, he's going to Saudi Arabia, where he will be kissing the feet of Mohammed bin Salman to get him to open up uh, more oil shipments because of the disaster resulting from the proxy war in Ukraine. So on the Middle East, Biden is in lockstep with Trump. And so that means on a country like Israel, where Trump openly embraced his fidelity, he moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Biden's pursuing the exact same policies. And accordingly, he's making statements such as calling a, a country where millions of people, indigenous people whose land was stolen from them, the Palestinians, live under military occupation. He's calling that a democracy, hmm. which nobody takes seriously anymore. If you look at all the major human rights groups, Beth Selim, which is Israeli, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, they all call Israel what it is, which is an apartheid state. And in fact, it's worse than apartheid if you look at the reality of what Israel does in the West Bank and Gaza. Hmm. 
But I mean, what you know? What can we? Aren't we? Aren't we talking about you know are the limits of U.S. power really to shape? Domestic policies in other countries, you know, to be the world police, to call out bad actors. And I think probably what maybe what you want and what you want, Brianna, and I think what I guess what I would want as well would be less hypocrisy here for going to, you know, how can we condemn. Um, uh, you know, a Russia, a Venezuela, et cetera, and then we embrace regimes that have not exactly the same, but, you know, other problems or other mistreatments of groups. We, you know, we're saying these are the good guys and these are the bad guys when it's so much more uh, confusing than that. And so that's why you end up seeing this continuity, because they just pick from, pre from one president to another, they just pick different different countries that are our friends and different ones that are not. And then they cloak it in this guise of humanitarian consideration when it's actually never about that. It's about, you know, what is what do we think is in our best interest, although then what the government thinks is in the best interest is uh, I think they're utterly wrong about half the time. Well, look, I agree with the general principle of not interfering in other countries' affairs. But the problem here, we're talking about Israel, which is a U.S. client state. Israel is the number one recipient, the number one recipient of U.S. foreign aid billions of dollars per year. A lot of that is funneled back into the U.S. military industrial complex. At the U.N., whenever there's an international effort to get Israel to comply with international law by withdrawing from the territories that it's occupied for decades, by getting it to respect Palestinians' minimal human rights, the U.S. vetoes these resolutions, dozens of vetoes going back decades. So the U.S. plays a critical role here in the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And I'm not asking the U.S. to interfere in Israel's politics. I'm just asking Israel to stop supporting apartheid and something worse than apartheid. And the U.S., if it changes policies, could make a huge difference on the ground because without U.S. protection, without being under the U.S. umbrella, Israel could not do what it's doing. But Joe Biden, because he doesn't care about human rights despite what he says, is willing to go to Israel, pledge his fidelity to an apartheid government, and essentially continue the policies of Donald Trump, who was supposed to be the person he was going to make a sharp turn from. And Rand Paul has actually been against some of this aid, I think, mm -hmm. uh, then joining probably, I assume, some of the further left yeah, uh, Congressman these, Ilhan Omar type people. Yeah, these progressive lawmakers haven't been entirely silent here. And yeah. you know, I think some leftists warned uh, that a Joe Biden administration could lead to a world where people on the whole, Democrats on the whole, were less attentive to the policies, to your point, Aaron, which under uh, Donald Trump attracted so much scorn. At the same time, these progressive policymakers do speak up. They tend to get railroaded by super PACs like DMFI and other Israel-aligned PACs, like the what, like what we're seeing with Ashita Tlaib right now, uh, where Bakahari Sellers is heading up a PAC trying to get her ousted from her seat. I mean, what do you make of the state of the kind of pro-Palestinian advocacy in the United States under the Biden administration? Well, certainly things have changed from how they used to be. Jesse Jackson, when he ran for president, he openly advocated a Palestinian state. And for that, he was bitterly attacked and condemned mm -hmm. as an anti-Semite. You can't do that anymore. Uh, although it's still very vicious, and that's why people like Rashida Tlaib have come under harsh attack. But things have opened up more now for more dissent. So you have members of Congress who can say the basic humane position, which is that we shouldn't be supporting occupation and apartheid. But it's still bad. I mean, look, Israel just killed an American citizen, Shireen Abu Akleh, a journalist with Al Jazeera. What has the U.S. done in response to that? They're essentially saying, oh, we can't say for sure that it was Israel who did it. They, we can't say for sure that Israel did it. They probably did it, but we can't say for sure. Mm -hmm. And they're not seeing any real accountability to the point where 
Shireen Abu Akhtar's family asked to meet with Biden on his trip to Israel and Palestine, and I believe Biden has rejected that request. Hmm. So it is very difficult, but luckily, I think the public has grown more aware of what of the reality was. There was a long time when anybody who spoke out, out about it was just dismissed as crazy or, or an anti-Semite. That's not possible anymore, just given all the information that's come out and what's happening in front of our eyes. But yes, as you say, it's still a challenge, and people who speak up do face all sorts of disingenuous attacks. You know, we're watching a very interesting shift on where the two parties stand on some foreign policy issues. To some degree, uh, you mentioned, you know, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. The only opposition, to the extent that there's any opposition to continuing to fund the Ukrainian opposition in Congress, the only opposition is coming from Republican, not all, a minority of the Republican members, uh, probably the ones you would most deem far right or whatever that, you know, label means. And then, you know, you've had some uh, sentiment of opposition uh, also among the, you know, kind of Democrats we're talking about, but the votes were really coming from, you know, this group of, of Republican legislators. I understand that on Israel, it, it's still quite different. Uh, the, the Republican Party, the Trump Republican Party, remained extremely supportive of Israel and aid to Israel, you know, Rand Paul being a, a massive outlier there. But I'm wondering, given this, you know, this greater understanding among some political figures in the Republican Party, that their base, broadly speaking, does not want to fund foreign conflicts and other governments, probably whether it's Ukraine or whether it's Israel, I, I, I got it. There's probably more appetite for not doing that among the Republican base than Republican leaders have historically realized. Some some leaders have realized, perhaps, or are starting to realize. So I wonder if you think we're going to continue to see this switch where where Democrats are the party of you know funding our allies, our humanitarian allies, or whatever it is, and Republicans are more skeptical of this kind of thing. Yeah, I don't expect the Democratic Party to evolve much on the question of Israel-Palestine, as Joe Biden is just displaying right now. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has said that if Israel didn't create itself, then the U.S. would have to create it. So there's a huge amount of fidelity to the Israeli occupation from the establishment Democrats. And you have people at the fringes of the party like Rashida Tlaib and um, Ilhan Omar and Bernie Sanders, too, who have been speaking up more. But whether or not that evolves depends on what kind of people are elected to Congress. And certainly the leadership, I don't see that changing. And on the Republican side, it's difficult because you have that evangelical component where a lot of Christian evangelicals love Israel because they see Israel as the site one day uh, of Christ's return. And then we're going to have the Armageddon. And then Jews like myself will be slaughtered, but they paper over that part <laughs> because for now Israel works for them. So um, it's, it's complicated, but overall, yes. Uh, is it worrying that Democrat, that zero Democrats, including Bernie Sanders and the squad, voted against the Ukraine proxy war bill, $40 billion, a lot of that going to the military industrial complex, also the Lend-Lease Act. Zero Democrats voted against it, all of them voted for it. That is a worrying trend. And we're in a tough position where we have to rely on the fringes of both parties to occasionally be decent on really vital issues. It's, uh, it's ominous. Hmm. Well, Aaron, I'm certainly glad you're still with us. And I thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Rising. Stay tuned. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, we could soon be holding the Biden administration accountable for what many of us believe is the government colluding with big tech to censor dissenting information and people. Take a look at this tweet from Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt. 
Breaking, a federal court granted our request for discovery and documents from top-ranking Biden officials and social media companies to get to the bottom of their collusion to suppress and censor free speech. No one has had the chance to look under the hood before now. Uh, before, now we do. Okay, so let me tell you about the lawsuit and then we'll break it down a bit. Now, Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt filed a lawsuit back in May against Joe Biden and others, such as Jen Psaki, Anthony Fauci, Nina Jankovic, Vivek Murthy, the CDC, NIAID, and several others claiming they colluded with big tech to censor people and information they didn't like. Essentially, the allegation is the government, unable to silence critics on their own, used big tech to do their dirty bidding. Specifically, the suit states that officials in the Biden administration actively pursued censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the 2020 presidential election, speech about the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origin, speech about the efficacy of masks and COVID-19 lockdowns, and speech about election integrity and the security of voting by mail. Now, the suit alleges the government infringed on our First Amendment right to free speech by getting big tech to label the content as disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, as well as getting people and brands kicked off or suspended from platforms as punishment for daring to discuss these forbidden topics. Now, I've been wondering why no one has brought up a suit like this against the government. It's been obvious for years that lawmakers have been using various forms of intimidation and threats of regulation to get big tech to censor people and ideas. Democrats have been have been carting in big tech executive after big tech executive publicly demanding they do more to combat misinformation. They flat out told them to censor us and they told them pretty publicly. So finally, someone is taking them to court over this. Now, whether or not you agree with any of these individual ideas, like the lab leak theory or election integrity, the government doesn't have the right to censor ideas, even bad ones or wrong ones. The government knows this. They can't censor themselves, so they found a little workaround through getting big tech to do it. Now, people have been screaming for years that big tech companies are private and can do whatever they want, including censor people and kick people off of their platforms. But if the government is holding them at knife point, are they truly making choices in the best interest of their business model? That's what Eric Schmidt is going to have to prove, that these big tech companies were not acting on their own volition for their own benefit, but instead because they were coerced or colluded with the government. And what the judge granted two days ago was Missouri's request for the case to move along quickly by allowing Attorney General Eric Schmidt to begin requesting from the government and big tech companies a whole host of documents, emails, and various correspondence between the two. They want to know who talked to who, when, and what they said exactly. So, of course, as expected, the Biden administration is simultaneously trying to get the case thrown out. So at this point, Eric Schmidt can ask for documents and subpoena big tech executives, but he'll be met with resistance each step of the way. These guys are not going to turn over documents and other discovery without a fight. So it's still too early to determine if Eric will actually get those documents in order to look under the hood. But he is actually but he actually has a fairly strong case that could cause a judge to grant many of the document requests. After all, government officials were pretty brazen about their efforts to label ideas and topics counter to, the, to their narrative as misinformation. The administration even created a disinformation governance board. Also, if you remember the emails that leaked to Fauci coordinating with others to orchestrate a campaign to discredit the lab leak theory, who did he contact? What were the conversations? Were they coerced in some way or perhaps even offered something? In July of 2021, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said, we're in regular touch with those social media platforms and those engagements typically happen through members of our senior staff, but also members of our COVID-19 team. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. 
Well, also in July of 2021, CNN reported that the White House was reviewing whether or not social media companies should be held legally accountable for misinformation. Kind of sounds like a, a threat. In fact, lawmakers and the administration's use of threat of eliminating section, they use that threat of eliminating Section 230 often. It's very possible and perhaps even likely that as a result, big tech regularly consulted with the government to find out what was the latest topic or who were the latest people the government wanted labeled as misinformation. Okay, so now for the big question. If, let's say, this lawsuit goes all the way and the ruling ends up being that the government did in fact collude and coerce social media to censor, infringing on our freedom of speech, what's the recourse? After all, many of us were affected by this. Here at the Hill, we were suspended. I've personally been suspended on my own channel and had posts removed that later ended up being accurate. There seems to be an endless list of people, shows and posts wrongly labeled or removed. Can we sue the government? Unfortunately, no. The government has what's called sovereign immunity and can't be sued except in rare circumstances. Maybe some YouTube creators, Twitter users, and others who've been labeled or banned could get together and form a class action lawsuit against the big tech companies. That's possible. If Missouri ultimately wins this suit, others bringing forward cases becomes more likely. Another big question is, would a win ultimately force social media to change? There was a time not long ago when we weren't allowed to say the vaccines don't stop the spread. We weren't allowed to talk about the lab leak theory. We weren't allowed to talk about alternative treatments or debate the efficacy of masks or discuss elections or Hunter Biden. Some of this stuff we still can't talk about. There's plenty more I didn't list that's still banned. If this lawsuit goes all the way and Missouri wins, will these topics remain taboo or will Americans be able to discuss ideas and thoughts freely again? So I want to kind of explore this idea, Brianna, because I think a lot of people in particular feel like, okay, so if Missouri wins, what do we get? We just get like the moral victory on this. So we can't sue the government. I mean, this is crazy that there is this thing, sovereign immunity, that makes it to where if they're found liable for, for if they, you know, if they, they say, yeah, you guys infringed on Americans' freedom of speech, like then what? Yeah, I mean, there are, I think, some limited exceptions under, I think it's called the Alien Torts Claim Act, where you can, if you can prove the government was negligent in their behavior, but it's a really high bar to uh, jump over, and it's very rarely allowed. Besides which, what we're describing here isn't necessarily negligence, right? It's these kind of affirmative right. choices that they made. And look, the, the ostensible rationale here is that the government has to make a million and one decisions every day. It's very difficult. They're not going to get all of them right. If it were constrained by the idea of being vulnerable to lawsuits, then it would be completely ineffective and hamstrung and yada, yada, yada. But it presents some real issues, I think, like we've raised, that they can act with impunity. And we've discussed this in other contexts, as like with the criminal justice system and police having qualified immunity. They, there is a direct effect on how they go about doing their jobs and the impunity with which they corral, abuse, beat, shoot, imprison innocent people who have very little recourse at the end of the day. Even people who are falsely right. imprisoned and win their cases and get out of jail after years, decades, sometimes in jail, get very little in recompense. There's a related or similar lawsuit that I think I've covered on the show. I at least wrote about it because I pulled up the article I wrote here, uh, brought by the New Civil Liberties Alliance on behalf of specific users of, I think, Twitter, who yeah. lost their accounts or were punished. And what they're saying, and it happened right after guidance from either the Department of Health or some government official. And so they're suing those government officials, saying that it was that it was improper for them to direct social media to take these actions 
transactions that resulted in these specific clients facing problems. And that might be that might be an even more plausible uh, path to holding uh, the government somehow accountable. But I, I do agree with you, Kim, and I, I think you know Republicans, conservatives, but and, and then the broader tent of people who are concerned about big tech censorship. For a long time, the emphasis has been too much on the companies themselves. Where, where at the end of the day, even if we disagree with what the companies do, like you said, it's a it's a pretty hard uh, from a legal standpoint to like punish them for making moderation decisions you don't like. Uh, if we change the laws, that could be different. But under the current legal regime, it's very difficult. It's not quite as difficult, uh, at least in theory to punish the government, either by just like voting out of office the people who do these kinds of things. Um, right. Maybe it is difficult to sue them, but there, you know, we can, we can, in some sense, we, the people of America, can, 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 um, can cha either change the government or have some say in what the government's policies should be, much more so than, you know, the moderation decisions right. the company makes. Well, so that should be the rightful method of, of directing change. It should be directed at the government sure. who gives the bad guidance to the social media companies rather than threatening Although, the social media companies themselves, in my view. Right. Although recently a very large case was just won with Alex uh, Berenson, who did win. the. Uh, he was banned from Twitter. He actually sued Twitter on the basis that they infringed upon his freedom of speech. They did. He did settle that case. He's back on Twitter. And he can't talk about it exactly just yet. So I'm, we're waiting to find out, you know, the details when Alex can talk about that at some point or some of the things that he can say. Um, maybe he's writing a book about it. I'm not 100% certain, like, why he's not able to give us the details as how did he beat big tech. But that is one. I think that's like the only big example at this point where we're actually seeing the tide turn. The court of public opinion is shifting on this as well. You know, people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, a lot of these things that are happening don't seem really right. And so, you know, right. these, these companies are not going to win in if they go to a jury trial, for example, per, per, perhaps, you know, but but right. that's so I, I mean, but I don't even know how often they would go to a jury. On right. something I, like I mean, this, they, I don't know can. what happened in that case either. I'm interested to learn more about it. If, yeah. if he's able to talk about it, or if anyone's able to talk about it, At some point. it might be a case of them just, you know, changing their mind about, well, we you know, we took you off. For the, because you made these claims, which at the time we, we thought were false, that we were directed to by the government. We no longer think they're false, so we're letting you back on. Um, but or or he, oh, no, or, he, he or maybe too. he claimed they actually said something, you know, in, in, in them saying that he said something false. Now that we know that's not false. I don't know. He we have to learn more about it. But you're right. That was right. a that was an interesting development this week. Uh, anyway, we'll have more rising and more discussion on this topic and many others right after this. CNN is reporting that former President Trump tried to call a member of the White House support staff who was talking to the January 6th committee. According to the report, the staffer was not someone who communicated with Trump directly in the administration, but was concerned about the contact, according to the unnamed sources, and informed their attorney. They go on to say that the call was made after Cassidy Hutchinson's viral testimony. The staffer was allegedly in a position to corroborate part of what Hutchinson said under oath. The person is remaining anonymous, according to CNN. Hmm. Hmm. So the accusation here is that Trump was trying to perhaps uh, influence a witness, influence them from um, corroborating Hutchinson's testimony. You know, people will argue a hit dog will holler, and this is evidence of uh, the veracity of her testimony and um, that he's telling on himself, as they say. 
No, I, well, I guess, but we're seeing an entirely one-sided procedure. We're seeing no, I mean, it's not a criminal procedure, so whatever, and they don't want to participate in it. But, the conservatives um, don't want to participate right. in it. And then also, They've been given an opportunity, to be clear. Right. And then also the other news from, from this week, from yesterday, uh, was that, or maybe it was from Monday, that, and I don't know how they got this exactly, but apparently there was a draft tweet that mm. Trump, so Trump didn't send it, but he had a draft tweet that uh, that also set, used the language march on the Capitol. There yeah. was instructions to march on the Capitol following the speech he was going to give, which isn't the first. There's an actual tweet he sent that was like the will be wild. He said it'll be wild or something like that. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was wild. So people. But my thing is people keep turning to these things as more evident as evidence of incitement. Oh, see, here's the clear evidence that he engaged in incitement and now he's going to be prosecuted and he's going to go to jail. And none of that is going to happen because it is not incitement for him to merely have instructed his followers to march to the Capitol. We could all do that. We can tell people to march to the Capitol. You can march to the Capitol. You can do it armed. It doesn't violate any law except for the part where they actually went into the Capitol, which is not something he told them to do. I absolutely hold him morally responsible for what happened. He is unfit to be president. He should have been removed from office, but he's not going to jail because it's not a crime. And I've said this before on this show. I feel like the conversation about how it's not going to result in Trump going to jail is used often as a way to take a sidestep away from a conversation about his culpability and his moral accountability. And I know that you just said you can hold him morally accountable, but when it's framed like that, he's not going to go to jail. Sure, 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 he's, he's culpable, but he's not going to go to jail. That, I think, really avoids what should be a substantive conversation about who this man is, I'm doing, especially if he's going to run for office. Again. I'm doing therapy for CNN and MSNBC <laughs> viewers. I want, I'm trying to let them down gently. I, they're watching, thinking this the season finale ends with Trump going to prison. There's like resistance fanfic. It's not going to happen. Maybe, and I'm, maybe that's I'm trying true. to let them down gently. Maybe that's I'm true. looking out for them. I'm really, really. And, and that's I, my all. It's. I'm not in that world, but you know, again, and I also, and maybe that's true, but I do feel like I'm frustrated because I don't care at all yeah. about that, that, whether or not you know, Trump, no president, no one that rich and that powerful that has that much dirt on that many people is ever going to jail. That's just not the way the wor world works. But there is a conversation to be had here about how to prevent things like this in the future, who Donald Trump actually is, the extent to which there are many people who continue to be in office in the Republican Party who corroborated and facilitated a lot of this behavior. And with respect to the tweet, I don't love the idea of using draft tweets to prove anything at all. The point is that the tweet wasn't sent and it has a little bit of the width of a thought crime. Yeah. I'm also not wild about the idea of these tech companies handing over this kind of information if that's to what law happened. enforcement. If that's in fact I don't happened. know how they got it and maybe that reporting is out there. It was not in any of the reporting I saw on this. Uh, but yeah, that is disturbing if they did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially given how much contact. I actually think that's something Kim is going to discuss in her radar today. But how much uh, going along with what this administration, the Biden administration, tells them to do, social media companies, regarding um, election claims, uh, fraudulent election claims, COVID, et cetera. So that would be a kind of a interesting thing. It's like, oh, here's this draft tweet. Yeah, I've got some, I've got some <laughs> tweets in the drafts, and they're staying in the drafts. <laughs> uh, uh, meanwhile, the New York Times has published a glowing profile of Ray Epps. The Times writes that Epps has suffered enormously in the past 10 months as right-wing media figures and GOP politicians have baselessly described him as a covert government agent who helped instigate the attack on the Capitol. Epps has come into the spotlight during hearings with the FBI over the agency's own involvement in January 6th. Here's Ted Cruz questioning the FBI about Epps' involvement back in January.
Did any FBI agents any F or FBI informants actively encourage and incite crimes of violence on January 6th? Sir, I can't answer that. Ms. Sadburn, Ms. who is Ray Epps? I'm aware of the individual, sir. Uh, I don't have the specific background to him. Well, there are a lot of well, people who are understandably very are concerned, understandably about, Mr. concerned Epps. about Mr. Epps. On the night of January 5th, 2021, Epps wandered around the crowd that had gathered. And there's video out there of him chanting, tomorrow, we need to get into the Capitol, into the Capitol. This was strange behavior, so strange that the crowd began chanting, fed, 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 fed. Ms. Sandburn, was Ray Epps a fed? Sir, I cannot answer that question. So some conservatives were accusing Epps of being an undercover FBI right. agent in instigating the events at the Capitol. There were also claims that Antifa had instigated the events of 1-6. I mean, is there a conspiracy problem? We talk about the kind of the fake news issue uh, being perhaps uh, handled poorly by the left. Is there a real conspiracy problem on the right? Well, yes, but... I mean, there's a conspiracy problem in in all in in, yeah. in on the right, on the left, in the mainstream. There's mainstream buy-in to conspiracies, um, like RussiaGate, it's, for example. The thing with apps is, is that so it could be like there's a lot going on in January 6th. There's a lot going on during the riot, and we would not put it past the FBI to embed law enforcement. Sure. In uh, in criminal activities in, you know, they've, they've done this. Uh, actually, I've, I've talked on the show a lot about the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping mm -hmm. plot, which the more and more you learn mm -hmm. about it, the more it was that the FBI was intricately involved in every stage of that, 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 that it was not just they had knowledge of it, but it was in some sense being organized by them because the person directing it was being paid by the FBI mm -hmm. to direct it, to get it to a point where there'd be enough there was enough evidence to arrest all these people. So there, she was never in any danger. They knew the whole thing the whole time. And in fact, there's a question of whether it would have happened mm -hmm. at all. or it, it didn't happen, but whether it would have gotten to the stage it had gotten to if the FBI had not paid and directed people to yeah. carry it out. Yeah. So absolutely. So that, that we know they, you know, they set up um, entrapment of, of Muslims and for terrorists, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it is Black not- Black Panthers. Black Panthers, um, KKK. Mm. There's an old joke, but like it, when there's a KKK rally, it's all 16 people. You know, 14 of them are undercover FBI agents or undercover journalists. Um, so, okay, all that is fair. So it would not be insane for someone or some people or some force at January 6th to have a connection to the FBI. The issue is, and I was, you know, I was there, I was reporting at the time. It, it was, though, however, mostly a spontaneous uh, a, pro a protest that turned into a riot where people were smashing windows and going in, N clearly not at the direction of the FBI or Antifa or any like these were by and large. I, I like I know some of the people who went in. Or, like, I know them from other right wing events. They are actual Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you can pin this on someone like Ray Epps and then say it's actually the FBI, it it, it, it falls apart under scrutiny. Mm -hmm. But which without ruling out that yes, sometimes. There is, there is some planning and there is some knowledge on the part of law enforcement or and, and other groups infiltrate the false flag type stuff. There can be an element of that, but it's pretty clear 
that by and large the majority of the of the violence and the trespassing was being committed sincerely by people on the right who who really who got carried away and were it, it was not part of some pre-planned thing in either direction. Yeah, so that's I mean, what I would say. That, that that's the problem with conspiracy theories. They're easy to believe because they're often right. very plausible, especially And there are elements of truth sometimes in various things. So you can't absolutely. you can't, you know, rule them all out, but we can rule a lot of them out or some things have a grain of truth. It's it's just it's trickier than all or nothing, but better, uh, better to be conspiratorial than gullible, some people say, and that's how we end up in right. these kinds of situations. That's so right. I don't know. We'll we'll have more rising for you after this. The FDA authorized the Novavax COVID vaccine, providing Americans with an alternative to the mRNA-based shots from Pfizer and Moderna. The Novavax primary series is given in two doses, administered 21 days apart. Kim, this yeah. is going to be, you know, a meaningful game, game changer for folks who are skeptical of the mRNA vaccines. Uh, no, I mean, it's just way too late. P people now are just saying, okay, what's the point of being vaccinated at all? You know, now people that maybe would have taken the Novavax vaccine when all of the other vaccines were being rolled out at first and everybody was needing to get vaccinated to work or to do things or travel, then there was definitely a subset of people that would have that would have taken this one um, rather than remain unvaccinated because they didn't want to do the mRNA. But now everybody's saying, why, you know, I, I don't, I don't have, there's no reason to take this anymore. You know, the older people are already pretty much dosed up and boosted and maybe quite, you know, double boosted with one of the other vaccines at this point. And I don't know if it, if you're able to cross, uh, I think they say you can, but I think a lot of people are, you know, they try to stick to the same one or something, but no, this won't do anything. And that I think is kind of the point. I'm very suspicious of this. Why did it take Novavax? so long to get approval here in the United States. This vaccine has been approved all around the world and including Europe. This is an American-based company. They were not able to get FDA approval here in the United States. They were ready to go a long time ago, maybe a year, year and a half ago. Hmm. Um, they started rolling it out into Europe, into South America, all around the world. You could get Novavax, but you couldn't get it here in the United States. Hmm. And the, the excuses they kept making were, you know, oh, well, their facility isn't up. You know, they would make these random excuses that weren't an issue for anywhere else in the world. But a lot of it just looked like the United States was, you know, whatever you think about it, but it was the feeling that the U.S. is just, Pfizer pays for a lot more of the politicians' parties and mm -hmm. lines their pockets a lot more. And so, and Moderna's connected to the government and connected to Fauci. So, you know, it had like the, the leg in, whereas Novavax was this outsider so they just wouldn't allow it. And it's crazy. I mean, every other country was able to use Novavax, except most, a, a lot of countries, I should say. Um, it is a different type of vaccine. It doesn't base things off of the, it doesn't, it's not an mRNA. It doesn't base off the spike protein. It bases on a different part of the virus. Um, so it's, you know, it, it does, it's a bit different. And yeah, people would have taken it, but it's too late. Hmm. So... <laughs> Um, yeah. But also, here we've got Dr. Anthony Fauci once again stressed the importance of getting vaccinated and boosted, citing the spread of the BA5 COVID variant during a COVID response press, press briefing on Tuesday. Watch this. The threat to you is now. If you are not vaccinated to the fullest, namely you have not gotten your boosters according to what the recommendation are, then you're putting yourself at an increased risk that you could mitigate against by getting vaccinated. And getting vaccinated now will protect you now does not at all preclude 
if we get a bivalent vaccine to be available in the fall, it does not preclude you're also doing it in the fall. So if the risk is now, address the current risk. Okay, so, you know. Yeah, um, yeah the, the argument okay. is that there is a, a surge happening right now. Go ahead and get boosted now. You can get boosted again in the fall. You know, what's, what's, what's the problem with that? My, my only instinct here is to want to have more details about the effect of the booster, since a lot of the conversation about its uh, effect on transmission is in the rear view mirror. I would love for them to be talking more about well, how getting a booster is going to lower your risk of going into the hospital by X percent or and what other kind of residual effects it might have on transmission or uh, getting a breakthrough um, case in the first instance. But the conversation yeah. is still seems kind of superficial. What do you make of it, Kim? I think one of the reasons why they don't have that conversation is because, quite frankly, they don't have the data. So mm -hmm. that is kind of the reality of the booster campaign is that there's just a lot of unknowns still, particularly with that younger group. So when they say we're going to start vaccine, double boosting people under the age of 50, they actually have no data on this whatsoever. None. So it is just same thing with, you know, Paxlovid for people that have been vaccinated. No data on that. There's a lot of things that they're just saying, we think this is going to be beneficial to you. And it might be, I, I would like to hear them say, it might be worth the risk. We, we still don't know, but you know, your risk of COVID is high if you're especially in a certain age group. You know, we think this, these things are really gonna help you and protect you. It's the best we've got right now. You know, make a decision for yourself. I think a lot of people in those age categories would say, then I think I'm gonna go do those things because I'm a, a bit worried about that as some people in certain age groups should be. But, you know, with transmission, the more boosters you get, we know that the it wears off faster. So, and it's not necessarily because you've gotten more boosters. Maybe there's that, the data's unclear. Maybe it's because the variants have shifted. Maybe it's, you know, there's a whole host of maybes, but we know it doesn't last long. So when they say it helps you now, that's because it looks like it only prevents transmission from you getting it for like two weeks, three weeks at the most. And that's after, you know, once you get it, you have to wait. And this is one thing they don't, you know, your immune system kind of weakens for a bit of time. They've mentioned this in the past before for, you know, a few days. And then you start building up the antibodies with, from the vaccine. So you kind of have to, you know, once you get the shot, you're not just safe and free to go out. You got to wait and wait for the antibodies to build up and then you can go out. So you get this window of time. I understand what they're saying, though. I mean, look, for my grandmothers, for example, I just got married. We had a wedding, uh, we had a lot of people, and we did make sure that our 95-year-old grandparents and our 90-year-old grandparents were boosted at least two weeks prior to showing up to the wedding. We did that because we thought that that will at least, by the time they're there, it should prevent the transmission for at least you know two weeks so they won't catch it. Um, nobody did catch it at my wedding, so I don't know if it worked or not. Most of the people at my wedding already had COVID, but grandparents hadn't, so... Glad to see that nobody got infected. But, you know, I understand what they're saying, but and I appreciate they're at least saying right now and you're probably going to have to get it again in the fall. So there's yeah, at least that. I, and I see a devil's advocate. I can see an argument for saying, OK, if there is a surge right now, even if the effects on transmission are minimal, um, and even for if for most healthy people, the effects on keeping out of the hospital are also fairly minimal. When you're talking about a surge across a huge population, even those kinds of marginal differences can make a pretty significant difference. Right. I mean, we're talking about you know monkeypox a lot. On the other hand, which has very few cases compared to what's going on with COVID, and there seems to be a, a significant desire for a vaccine and for there to be kind of more done to address that 
before it becomes a bigger problem. And so, you know, I can see an argument to say, this, we're talking about huge population numbers and even marginal effects could have um, significant outcomes, so people should go ahead and get boosted now for the, for the greater benefit. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't know. If, but if they want people to really affirmatively be making that case, then they have to be making that case more affirmatively and be making and, and talking about what the effects of a mass boosting boosting campaign can be, and also on an individual level, why it still behooves you, even if you aren't in a higher risk group, to go ahead and, and get boosted. Yeah, I mean, they just need to give us more data on uh, about the whole thing so we can all make more decisions about it, I think. But um, Fauci also wants to reinstate masks, so I think he wants to, to bring those back. Let's watch that. Should people be masking indoors again, given the extra infectious nature of this new variant? Well, as the CDC makes it very clear, depending upon the density of infection and the dynamics of infection in the place where you live, and you see, if you look at the map, where just a couple of months ago it was a lot of green and some yellow, now we're seeing a fair amount of orange, which means you really should, in an indoor setting, a congregate setting, be wearing masks. It's just the appropriate thing to do to defend, to protect yourself and your family and those around you, because you could get infected and inadvertently, without any symptoms, transmit it to someone, perhaps in your own household, who's vulnerable, either an elderly person or someone with immune compromise. And that's the reason why when you're in an area where the infection dynamic is high, you should wear a mask in a congregate indoor setting. Yeah, so however, uh, while Fauci said variants uh, was still continuing to emerge, he added that we should not let it disrupt our lives, uh, saying that uh, it's a reality that we need to deal with. You know, is he saying that mandates need to come back? I thought the Supreme Court was pretty clear that we couldn't have mask mandates. Isn't it just a recommendation that it's something else that you can do to keep yourself safe? Did they say did they say that the government, like only the federal government, couldn't instate mask mandates on public transportation? But mm. I think the individual governments can. Right. Okay. So I think like inside of your municipality, they could say you still have to put on a mask or at least your your school or your I, I think it might have been very specific to just public transport or like federal government. So Fauci saying that could direct a lot of the municipalities. I'm not sure on that, but I think that's what it is. So maybe Fauci saying it could be where in our each individual cities, we're going to start seeing mask mandates return. That might be possible. Yeah, well, so far, it doesn't seem to be the case um, here in D.C., even restaurants that kind of lingered and had an individual, you know, they're, they're, they chose to require masking when you went in after the mandates were um, removed, even those are gone, I've noticed. And there does seem to be an attitude where people are pretty committed to going back to the to normal, back to the status quo. And I think it might be difficult to get people to put the masks back on. My observations of getting in Ubers and stuff is that most people aren't wearing them. If I'm wearing one when I get in, sometimes the driver will put one on, not that I ask him to or ask them to. Um, but it does seem to be very laissez-faire. And I wonder whether compliance will be more difficult now that they've kind of gone back and forth on this. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people are fed up. I know I'm fed up with it, but I also wear a mask if I'm asked to. I've never, it, it wasn't for me the biggest, um, I, I have a bigger problem with it for children. And I think here in California, they are still mandating children wear masks at certain in certain schools. I think the school districts are asking for kids to come back only if they're going to be wearing masks. Um, that to me is absolutely total nonsense. 
But yeah, I mean, I, I think the appetite for mask wearing for a lot of people is low. But I do think that we might see as the fall rolls around, you know, it's hard to say. I live in really liberal L.A. and in a, in a particularly liberal part of town on top of it. So I see a lot of masks, even mm. people outside walking you know, so, in the fresh so air. Interesting. When I was in uh, France last week, almost nobody was wearing them. Nobody. In the airport, because people were coming from different places, and perhaps even French people felt that that was a place of higher exposure, there was some masking. But as soon as we got into our Uber leave the airport, you know, the driver you know, asked us, he said, you know, you don't have to wear a mask here. And we were all masked in the car. And we're like, oh, that's, I mean, yeah, we understand we don't have to wear masks in America either, but many people still do. And it was an interesting back and forth because walking around, except for tourists, it seemed, I mean, it's obviously hard to identify for sure, but except for tourists, it seemed like almost nobody wore them at all in a, in a country that we consider to be kind of like politically liberal. So I, I wonder Yeah, they're if- liberal, but they're not, <laughs> oh, am I- uh, they're liberal, but they're not like woke, I would say, in a way. Like, not that, not, I, I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, they're not politically, they're not moral, you know, posturing all the time. Yeah, like the, we it wasn't politicized. Yeah, even when he was like, you don't have to wear masks here, I was like, oh, no, I don't want us to get into a weird, tense exchange if we choose to keep ours on. But it was almost like the all the political valences around mask wearing that we have here just didn't seem to exist. So, right. Yeah, well, the. That does it for us today. Uh, Emily Jashinsky and Ryan Grimm are back tomorrow for Rising Fridays, along with some fantastic guests, including familiar faces, Max Alvarez and David Sirota. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also be sure to check us out on podcasts if you like to download and listen to us on the go. Otherwise, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for watching.